First of all, we'll note a few interesting things about this passage. The text for this morning is verses 1 through 12. We'll note a few interesting things about this book in general, and then we'll read our text here, and then we'll consider the subject for the morning. And the title I've given it is, A Proper Perspective of Trials. A Proper Perspective of Trials. Now, let's note here the author. It is widely believed that the author, James, here was the brother of Jesus. That's not believed by all, but it is widely believed. That is what is generally accepted. Uh, James was considered one of the apostles. He was also the bishop at the church there at Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 15, Paul refers to him as the leader of the council, or perhaps uh, he was sort of like the conference moderator, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, the leader of the council there in Acts chapter 15, Paul also referred to him as one of the pillars in the church. We read that in Galatians chapter 2. He lists three men who seem to be pillars in the church, I think we read it that way. And James was the first one, and then Peter and John. And yet, even with these credentials... James appears to be a very humble man. Note how he introduced himself in, in verse 1. He says, he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say, hey, this is James. I'm a bishop of the church. I'm one of Jesus' brothers. You know, <laughs> listen up. You know, it, it wasn't that kind of a greeting, but he simply said, I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word servant is, is a slave. I'm a slave. <laughs> that, that speaks powerfully about a man who was, who was high in authority, had a lot of responsibility, dealt with a lot of issues, but yet he said, I'm just a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I am. And, and then he went right on. He didn't, he didn't give any more uh, <laughs> you know, big, big boasts about himself. James was, was very highly esteemed among the Jewish Christians as well as the, the Jewish unbelievers. He was looked up to. In fact, he was referred to as James the Just. That was sort of his nickname, I read, James the Just. Now, it's very likely that, that this epistle of James was, was one of the earliest written books in the New Testament, if not uh, the earliest one. It is interesting to note, though, that it is perhaps one of the last ones to be included, though, in the canon of Scripture. There was controversy over it, and we won't get into that this morning, about all the details there. But although it was perhaps one of the earliest ones written of the New Testament, it was one of the last ones to be recognized and to be added to the, the canon of Scripture. So it was written perhaps around AD 47, and then James uh, was martyred, in AD 62. So thinking about a proper perspective of trials this morning, James knew what he was talking about, dealing with trials, perhaps much more than we do today. Now, his writing style is unique. It's very straightforward. It's to the point. He doesn't, he doesn't beat around the bush, but he cuts right to the chase in the way that he writes. Um, he also doesn't appear to be very big on greetings and introductions and conclusions <laughs> like, like Paul was. You know, sometimes when you read, uh, read the Apostle Paul's writings, how he would, his introductions would be six, eight, ten verses long where he'd go on and on, and I, and I greetings, and greetings to all of you and to you, and, and I pray for you, and I thank God for you, and it's so good to see you, and all this type of thing. And then finally he would get into what he's talking about. And then also, Paul would also sort of wind down at the end. And make sure you do this, and make sure you do that, and tell these people, I said hi, and don't forget this, and, and, and then he would, you know, peace be with you. James isn't like that. He, he gives a short introduction he hits right right into it, verse 2, and then he sort of stops rather abruptly at the end of chapter 5 here. So, he starts and stops rather quickly. Uh, it's interesting to note his, his style of writing here. Now, the audience, let's note that as well. The audience here is to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. And so, this book is written to Jewish people. 
Whereas much of Paul's ministry and much of his writing was to uh, the Gentiles, to the Gentile converts, uh, it was, a lot of his ministry was to those very young Gentile congregations. Here, James, it seems like his calling, he felt like his calling, his ministry was to the Jewish believers. Uh, you could say it was to church people, <laughs> people who grew up in, in a religious setting. And so it's interesting to note that the subjects he addresses in this letter were more fitting for church-style people. He doesn't talk about fornication and lawsuits and, and offering meat to idols and drunkenness and things like that. Paul talks about those things a lot. James doesn't. James talks about things like trials and temptations and watching your tongue, and prayer, and wealth, things that we can really associate with. You know, that, yeah, that, that's me, that's me. I, I struggle with the same things as well. And things that pertain to more, you could say, church people. Well, let's look at this, this text here this morning. Follow along as I read James 1, 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting... My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth. And the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. A proper perspective of trials is what we want to focus on this morning. We're thinking about a subject that more than likely all of us can relate to. Trials, hardships, struggles, unpleasant happenings in life. They leave no one behind. And if if you think that perhaps you haven't faced those yet, let me just kindly say that you will. You will. James makes it clear here in verse 2 that trials and hardships are a part of life. He says, when you fall into divers temptations, or whenever you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't say if, but in essence he's saying, dear people, go ahead and prepare yourself for the trials that will come. Go ahead and prepare yourself. Trials are going to come your way. Let me help you. Let me give you some advice. Let me show you what to do when that happens. Now, before we go any further, let's just quickly take note of the word temptation. And in the, in the King James Version here, we see it four times. Verse 2, verse 12, and then let me just mention as well, verse 13 and 14, which we're not looking at as much this morning, but it's, it's right the same part of the same passage. We see that word four times, or a form of temptation. Now, in the NIV, we read trials in verses 2 and 12, and we read temptation in verses 13 and 14. Now, don't let that, don't let that get you mixed up or confused. I mean, the truth is, They all come from the same Greek word, which has the idea of to put to the test or to prove. They're all from the same root word. Now, we often think of trials 
as, as sufferings or afflictions or hardships. And we think of temptations as maybe a solicitation to do something wrong or, or, or being you know, lured into something that's wicked. But in general, I say these things are all one and the same. Trials, temptations, whatever you might want to call them, they all speak of anything that might try to, well, I should say, they speak of anything that, that will try us or test us. They're testing the reality of our faith. Testing the reality of our faith. And so they all have the potential to make us or break us. They all have the potential to make us better or to make us bitter. You've perhaps heard that before. They all have the potential, whether it's those solicitations to do wicked things or whether it's afflictions or trials that just drop into our life, they all have the potential to shake our faith. In verse 3, we read that, knowing this, that the trying of your faith your faith is what, is what is in focus here. It's being tried. Are you going to stand up or not? Are you going to make it? And so I ask you this morning, how are you responding to these situations in life? Do you have a proper perspective of trials? Certainly you have a perspective of trials. But my question this morning, do you have a proper perspective of trials? And by the way, let's make sure that we have a, a more specific understanding of what we're looking at this morning. What are trials? You see, trials are much more than just simply uh, James being martyred and, and all that went along with that. Sometimes we read, the, we read the scripture and we see these big things that, that they dealt with, that men of faith, women of faith dealt with, and, and they were really significant, and it ended up in, in, in death or all, you know, close death experiences and so forth. And we say, boy, that's a trial. That's suffering. That's affliction. But I think we would have to quickly admit that we deal with, with trials and suffering and affliction in our lives today that are perhaps much smaller than that, but yet they have a, a way of trying our faith, of testing us. They're, they're pulling for allegiance. Well, Webster's says that trials is the process of trying or putting to the proof, or a tryout or experiment to test quality, to test value, to test usefulness. Someone has said, trials are disruptions that God allows into our life in order to see what we're made of. Disruptions that God allows into our life in order to see what we're made of. Now, here are some examples of trials that some of you have faced in the recent past. When you spend close to three months in the hospital separated from your spouse, that's a trial. When you build a house and then can't find water, that's a trial. When you suffer an emotional and mental illness, that's a trial. When you suffer a miscarriage and lose a baby, that's a trial. When your brother dies unexpectedly, that's a trial. When your van breaks down on a Saturday night and you're still two hours from your destination, that's a trial. And then when the part comes in on Tuesday and it's the wrong part, or you put it on and it still doesn't work, that's a trial. And here's one that the children might can connect to. When you were just playing around and it ends up taking four stitches to fix that playing around, that can be a trial in a children's way. But it will also be a trial for dad and mom as well. You know, disruptions like these and many others, and, and by the way, if I didn't list your trial, don't hold it against me. I'm simply giving a sampling of some that came to mind, and there's many more. But disruptions like these and many others, they vary greatly in size and severity. What might look like a trial to you may not look like a trial to your brother or sister, and vice versa. 
And so they may vary in size and severity, and yet they all call for a response from us. We will respond in some way or other to the trials that come into our life. We may choose, and I trust we don't, but we may choose to, to inwardly shake our fist at God and say, hello? I mean, don't you know what you're doing? How can this possibly be good for me? What does this have to do with love? What about care? And that kind of response. And then we can slowly, slowly pull away from God. We start doubting Him. Really? This doesn't make sense. What did I do to cause this? Or we can choose to respond by trusting our sovereign, all-knowing God and, and holding to His unchanging hand. And note, I say, we can choose to respond that way. Because the, the truth is, we choose how we respond. We make that choice. Psalm 37, 23, and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. That's a beautiful picture. And I picture, I picture uh, a dad, or maybe me, walking up, walk, taking a little walk with one of my little, little ones, maybe Molly or, or Colin, who their walking is, is coming, but it's not quite as efficient as perhaps an adult. And so we're taking a walk, and I'm holding their hand, and they trip, and they go down, but they don't go the whole way down because I've got their hand. And I pull them back up, and we keep on walking. It's that picture that I have in my mind of these verses. Though they fall, they shall not be utterly cast down. It's not a face plant, as it were, but it's, it's, a, it's a trip, and God's right there. Come on, I've got you, and, and walking along. A beautiful picture of trusting the hand of God, holding His hand. And yes, God allows those bumps in our path, but we are not utterly cast down. We could also respond with the attitude of Job. And Job, you remember his tremendous trial. This was no small deal at all. When he lost his family, and other than his wife, he lost his children. And I mean, he basically lost his wife. She was just still there. But um, he, he lost his family. He lost all his possessions. And, and what did he say? He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then later in the story of Job, we read his response of patient trust in God. He said, when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. <laughs> now, dear people, this is not just sheer willpower that we hear <laughs> in the response of Job. That was not just positive thinking, but that was a heartfelt response of a man who knew God. And he knew that God was working good in his life. He was assured of that. And so because of that, he could respond in the way that he did. I say it was a man, it was a testimony of a man who knew God. Who had a relationship with the Lord. And you know, he was many, many years ahead of the Apostle Paul. And yet it seems he could have wrote the words that we read in Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And yet how often we find ourselves inaudibly responding with, Who's good? <laughs> Certainly not my good when it comes to a, a trial that hits us in life. And people share that verse with us and perhaps it can be a little bit irritating. And we, know, we know that all things work together for good to them who love God. Hang in there. And we're like, Who's good? This does not feel good. As if somehow God's good is, is separate from our ultimate well-being. As if somehow our perspective is better 
than God's great perspective. As if somehow God has it out for us. All things work together for good. Now, I'm a baker, at least I manage a bakery, and so I ran across this illustration that I thought was was sort of interesting that that explains that concept somewhat. All things work together for good. Uh, It reminds me of the ingredients in a cake after they have been mixed together. Now, as you're aware, some of the ingredients in a cake that go into a cake are not good by themselves. You know, for example... Um, baking powder or, um, or what else, raw eggs, things like that, salt. In and of themselves, those are not good to the normal person. <laughs> Put that disclaimer in there. However, there are good things uh, in and of themselves, you know, in, in, a, in a, the ingredients that make that cake. You know, we might like the sugar, we might, we might like uh, some vanilla. Um, you might even like a little bit of butter. I don't know. Some of those things, some of those things we can stomach fairly well by themselves. And so you've got ingredients that are good by themselves. You've got ingredients that are downright nasty by themselves. But in order to get a really good finished product, those good ones and bad ones must be mixed together. And when they are properly mixed together you get a good outcome. You get a delicious cake. You know, in a similar way, we must learn to trust God even in the bitter experiences of life. Knowing that He will take those things and He will blend them together. He will make them work together for good. You know, God knows which ingredients are needed. God knows just how to mix them together to bring and produce the desired results. We must learn to trust God with that. Let me just share a couple more down-to-earth type illustrations that have been helpful to me as I think through this thing of, of gaining a proper perspective of trials. Because, see... Humanly speaking, trials are not good. We don't think they're good, and and we steer away from them. We don't like them. But yet the Scripture says, count them all joy. Think about the good that they bring to your life. And so we're trying to look at that this morning. And so illustrations, down-to-earth illustrations, can sometimes help me through that process. Okay, children, here's one that that, that you can connect with, a kite. Perhaps you like flying a kite. Okay, so think about a kite. Now, in order for that kite to be really special, in order for that kite to be a high flyer, in order for that kite to operate at peak performance, that kite has to, you could say, submit to the string and to the tail. You see, both of those factors, they, they, they produce tension on that kite. They, they, they pull on it. They, they hold it back, in a sense. They drag it. You know, when that string is keeping proper tension on the kite, and when that tail has the right amount of weight, then you can have a good flying kite. But you know as well as I do, boys and girls and others as well, that if, you, if the kite would say, I want some freedom. I just want to soar. I don't want anything holding me back or hindering me. If he would say that and decide to cut off the string and cut off the tail, you understand that that kite would be of little value really, really soon. That's just one small illustration. Here's another illustration that I, that I found interesting. It has to do with fish, codfish. Listen here. In the northeastern United States, codfish are a big commercial business. Note the following facts. There is a market for eastern codfish all over, especially in sections farthest removed from the northeast coastline. But the public demand posed a problem to the shippers. At first, they froze the cod, then shipped them elsewhere. 
But the freeze took away much of the flavor. So they experimented with shipping them alive in tanks of seawater. But that proved even worse. Not only was it more expensive, the cod was, I'm sorry, the cod still lost its flavor. In addition, it became soft and mushy. The texture was seriously affected. Finally, some creative person solved the problem in a most innovative manner. The codfish were placed in the tank of water along with their natural enemy, the catfish. From the time the cod left the east coast until it arrived at its westernmost destination, those ordinary catfish chased the cod all over the tank. And you guessed it, when the cod arrived at the market, they were as fresh as when they were first caught. There was no loss of flavor, nor was the texture affected. If anything, it was better than before. Now here's the application. Each one of us is in a tank of particular and inescapable circumstances. It is painful enough to stay in the tank, but in addition to our situation, there are God-appointed catfish to bring sufficient tension that keeps us alive, alert, fresh, and growing. It's all part of God's project to shape our character so we will be more like His Son. Understand why the catfish are in your tank. Understand that they are part of God's method of producing character in your life and mine. That's good food for thought. Let's think for a few moments about the importance that trials play in developing strong Christian character. The importance that trials play in developing strong Christian character. Now, I want you to think for a moment of someone that perhaps you consider a spiritual hero. Maybe they're still alive. Maybe they're still with us. Or maybe they've passed on already. But someone that you consider or have considered a real spiritual hero and you kind of look up to them. Chances are that they have a good idea what pain and suffering are all about. Chances are that they, have, that they have considered and experienced significant losses in this physical life. And if I would ask for a raise of hands this morning of everyone who enjoys hard times and enjoys tribulation and enjoys trials... If I would ask for a raise of hands, I'm sure the response would be very weak. Because the truth is, we hate it. We don't want anything to do with it. Our flesh wants nothing to do with the valleys. We love mountains, but we don't want anything to do with the valleys. And we will go to great lengths to steer clear of those kind of issues in life. Things that may be painful or will hurt us. It reminds me of, of a shirt that I saw. Uh, a lady was wearing this shirt the other day in, in town, and it simply said on the front, I hate hurting. So simple, but yet, don't we understand? Yeah, I mean, that's so, that's so human. We, no one likes to hurt. No one likes to feel pain. And yet, if we're really honest with ourselves, if we, if we look way down in the depths of our heart, we well know that it's in those times of hurting, it's in those times of pain that we've seen the work of God more clearly in our life. We know very well that it's in those valleys of life when our dear Heavenly Father has felt more near to us than ever before. And we know that it's in those hard times of life that we often see and experience that mighty work of God. We, we feel His power in a way that we just didn't notice when life was all fun and games. We just didn't notice it. But all of a sudden, we see it more clearly in those times of life that are painful and, and hard. Let's just look at the testimony of some men in the Bible who went through the fire, you could say. Uh, remember the story of Joseph. There when Joseph was, was rudely taken from his family at a young age, 
And then he went through all those years of difficulty. Separated from his, his parents. Separated from his family and the things that were normal and dear to him. Remember what he said when he got back with his brothers. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And we say, well, yeah, I mean, it would be easy to say that when, when the problem is resolved. When everything is good again, it's easy to make a statement like that. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I'm just glad we're good now. But the truth is, as we look at the life of Joseph through those years when he was separated from that, we know that that was a part of his life. That was an attitude that he had. This wasn't just an after attitude. It was a during attitude as well. God has a purpose for this. God has a plan for this. The psalmist David in Psalm 119, he also writes about how God used hard times to to draw him closer to God, to help him see himself as he really was in his need for God. Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Verse 71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Turn real quickly to Romans chapter 5. I just want to note the Apostle Paul. Uh, here's, a, here's another great man of faith who, who went through so many hardships, and we read about his trials uh, that were severe, and yet, notice what his perspective of trials were, and, how, and how, what he has to say about that in relation to developing strong Christian character. Romans chapter 5, the first five verses. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And and this is a good day. Paul is saying, this is great. And, And we all like to glory in this. And we rejoice in this. And the glory of God. And this is good. And yes, yeah, we like days like this. This is easy to rejoice. But notice what he says next in verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. That sounds like James, doesn't it? Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Now, that word experience comes from the Greek word dokime, which in many translations is character. Character. You see that in verse 4, experience. And so let me read it with that, in, with that in mind. We glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulations worketh patience, and patience worth, worketh character, and character hope, and hope does not make ashamed. You see, that's a proper perspective of trials. And Paul realized that. He realized that it's in those difficult times, God brought them things into his life to prepare him more fully for what lied ahead. It was producing character within him. We read in in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the trial of our faith being much more precious than gold. And then he describes gold as that which perishes. <laughs> you know, gold. Wow, that's the real stuff. That's value, right? But the Apostle Peter says, it has no eternal value. It perishes. It's only here for a little bit and then it's gone. He said, the trying of your faith has an eternal value. That will build something that lasts and endures forever. It's not just for this life, but it's, it's growing you, it's developing you for the future. For what God has in store for you. As I was, as I was thinking about this message, uh, this song came across the radio. It's amazing how God does that sometimes, but the chorus said this, and it's the trials that bring us closer to heaven. 
And it's the trials that bring blessings untold. And it's the trials that bring us close to Jesus. Yes, it's the trials that make pure gold. You see, it's an eternal perspective. God is trying to use those things. He's not trying. He's using those things. He puts in our path those hardships, those struggles, in order to prepare us to make us of eternal value. Now, here's here's an example of someone that's not in the Bible, but she has great faith. It's a lady. Her name is Fanny Crosby. Let me just mention about Fanny Crosby. And you realize that we sing a lot of her, her songs. But at a very early age, she was just a baby, and she developed a rash around her eyes. And so they got the doctor to, to help. That's what doctors do, right? They help. Well, due to doctor malpractice, the doctor used some salve or something. I don't know all the details, but due to doctor malpractice, little Fanny lost all of her eyesight. She became completely blind. And at the age of eight, she described her condition in this way. It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly eyesight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. Wow. And once again, we could say, well, she was just eight years old. I mean, eight-year-old girls are not very realistic about everything in life, okay? But there again, we understand that that is not where Fanny stopped. But she went on through her life and proved her faith in God, even in her severe trial, she proved that faith in God by writing many, many hymns and gospel songs. Actually, she wrote over 8,000 hymns and gospel songs in her lifetime. Her, Her music or her writing was in such popular demand, many, many producers... Uh, publishers, I should say, of, of songbooks, wanted to use her, her writings, her hymns, but they were embarrassed and they didn't want to use so many. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to fill up their songbook with Fanny Crosby. And so in her lifetime, she ended up writing under over 200 pen names so her, so her songs could be used more widely. <laughs> and so we end up singing a lot of Fanny Crosby songs that we don't even know it, probably. But Fanny Crosby was serious. And she used her faith and trust in God as a, as a means of speaking to many others of His power and of His might. I said that's a proper perspective of trials. Well, let's wrap things up this morning by going back to our text in James 1 and just considering four keys that will help us cultivate a proper perspective of trials. Now, first of all, note verse 12. Here in verse 12, we have the goal, or we have the promise. Actually, we have both. We have the goal, and that is in verse 12, to endure, to persevere, to stand the test. That's our goal. Is that not your desire this morning? I trust it is. And then along with that, we have God's promise. And that is... He shall receive the crown of life. Those who endure, those who persevere, those who stand up under fire will receive the crown of life. That's the promise. You know, just as sure as the fact is that we will face trials in life, just as sure as that fact is, is also the certainty of the promised reward For those who stand the test. Verse 2. Count it joy. When ye fall into these things. Verse 12. If you endure. Ye shall receive the crown of life. Two certainties. So. What is the key from getting from verse 2 to verse 12? From the problem you could say to the promise. What is the key? And we find four keys. I say in verses 2 through 8. And they are all in the form of imperative verbs. Now, it's interesting to note, 
uh, it goes along with James' style, straightforward, to the point, cut right to the chase. But in the 108 verses that are in the, the book of James, 54 of those verses contain imperative verbs. Do this, do that, that type of thing. And so, here are four things that we must do. Count, know, let, and ask. First of all, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Or consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. Consider it pure joy. This is not a don't worry, be happy attitude. No, this is not a take some medicine to knock the edge off a reality approach. Not at all. Instead, it's a command to simply trust God that He has the best in store. To acknowledge that His ways are higher than our ways. And to praise Him in spite of how we feel. To praise Him in spite of how we feel. You see, this, this counting or this considering is not based on flimsy feelings, but instead it's based on a conscious choice to trust God, to obey Him, to believe in His promises. And in case you think that this is just ridiculous and downright impossible, then just quickly consider a few examples. Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that when you're persecuted and reviled and all this, rejoice and be exceeding glad. Think about Peter and John when they were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And if you preach in the name of Jesus, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be beaten. And they said, we cannot. But speak of the things that we have, or, or, but, or tell of the things that we have heard and saw or whatever. They said, we've got to do it. We can't be quiet. They said, you're going to be beaten. And they went ahead and they, they taught and they preached. And yes, they were beaten for that. But as they left there, it says that they left rejoicing. That they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. Count it all joy. Consider it pure joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Uh, think about Paul and Silas there in the Philippian jail. Now, they were also beaten they were in rough stocks. And how did they pass the time? Well, they passed the time in singing praises to God. You know, sometimes children have a much better perspective of these things than we do. Sometimes children preach the most powerful messages. Uh, the other night, little Colin, I don't know if y'all knew, some of you might know that, on Wednesday night he fell on the steps out here after church and, and cut, his, cut his forehead open a little bit. And... Uh, it looked like such that we should go to the emergency room. So we went in there and, um, and ended up getting four stitches. But while we were laying there waiting for the doctor, he was laying there waiting for the doctor, and uh, the time went on and on. And this was, you know, normally he would go to bed at 9 o'clock or something, and this was about 11.30, and we were still waiting for the doctor. It was no fast process. But, but I was getting weary of this, and, and the doctor wasn't there yet, and we were waiting. And Colin just starts singing. Everybody ought to keep smiling, smiling. The men and the women and the boys and the girls. I'm like, where did that come from? I mean, we just don't do that, you know? But that was his response. I mean, I didn't prep him for that or anything. That's what he decided to sing. Consider it, count it all joy when you're faced with trials of any kind. You know, trials are not fun, and trials do not feel good. And yet we are called to have a joyful attitude. And we say, well, how is that possible? How is it possible to rejoice in the midst of suffering? How is it possible to rejoice when things are painful? And our next key helps us with that, and that is to know. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. I say the right knowledge concerning the value of our trials makes it possible to have a joyful attitude. The right knowledge of the value of our trials makes it possible. You see, the joy is not in the circumstance itself. No, 
There is not joy in getting a big cut in your head. That's not fun. But the joy is in what the circumstance means for you and me. The things that come into our life, no, they're not pleasant, but we can rejoice in the fact when we consider what this means for me. What this is doing for me. What this can do for me. The focus is on the end result. The focus is on verses 4 and 12 here. Verse 4 speaks about uh, being perfect. Let it, let it do its work and be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That's a complete and a whole person. Uh, verse 12, receiving that crown of life, that is the focus. We must understand that, yes, trials do test our faith, but when our faith is tested, it can bring out the best in us. It can bring out the best in us. Just as fire purifies gold, just as intense training prepares the athlete for the game, is that training fun? Is that training Uh, real enjoyable, many times not, and many times it's painful, but it prepares that athlete for something bigger and greater. And so with this understanding, we can have joy in our trials because we know that our trials are for us. They're not against us, but instead they're working for us, in our benefit, for our good. Trials help us to grow. They help us to mature. That is, when we respond to them correctly. Remember, once again, we choose how we respond. That's our choice. But then in order to really benefit from trials, we need to obey the third key, and that is to let. Let patience have her perfect work. And this is hard. This speaks of submission. This speaks of of yielding my lowly will and way to God's higher purpose and plan. It means letting go of my will and letting God work. Let. Let patience have her perfect work. You know, God never forces a man or a woman to do what He desires. He never forces them to do that. But by His divine design, He he places things into our path that are intended to shape us and to mold us more fully into His likeness, into His image, into a whole and a complete person. Our response to that will determine the value that it plays in our life. I say our response to those things will determine the value that it places in our life. And then lastly, ask. Let him ask of God. You know, letting patience have its perfect way is certainly not an easy task. And it takes the wisdom of God to see value in our trials. To the earthly person, we'll miss it. We just simply will miss it. We will not get it. It'll be such a stumbling block. It takes the wisdom of God to see values in our trials. I say this requires, it requires the Spirit of God to be alive and well within us. It does. A person who lacks the active work of the Holy Spirit in their life will not be able to stand under fire, but they will wither, they will fall, they will die. And you can note that in verses 10 and 11. There's a picture of a person like that who is not able to stand under the, under the trial. It, it, it pulls them down. They're lacking that godly wisdom. They're lacking that spirit of God that's guiding them. And so I say the spirit-filled Christian will ask God for wisdom. He'll ask God for spiritual insight. He'll ask God for that eternal perspective. And the the Spirit-filled Christian will ask in faith. He will ask God for eyes of faith to see through this in His perspective. And they will not waver. 
They will not doubt the promises of God because they believe in them. And then God promises to give wisdom generously, to not hold back, but to pour it out on those who are sincerely seeking. God says, I will give it to him. God will not make light of our heartfelt cry. We find that in in verse 5. He gives liberally, he upbraideth not, or he does not find fault with our weak plea for help. He doesn't find fault with us in that. But he gives wisdom and understanding to those who ask for it. I say God's wisdom in times of trial is essential to enduring. It's essential to enduring. Well, in conclusion, I would just like to read the words of this song that I find very meaningful. It speaks of the daily trials that come into our life and how they can point us in God's direction. Day by day, day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in the Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me. He whose name is Counselor and Power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me he made. Help me then in every tribulation so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting ere to take us from a father's hand. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. That's my prayer for each of us this morning. That we would cultivate, with the help of God, a proper perspective of trials. May the Lord help us to that end. We'll call for a song.